The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Those of you who have not been with us on a regular basis, just by way of review, we have been going through the book of Acts in your New Testament. We started in the very beginning, verse 1, and today we're actually looking at Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. So if you want to turn there, follow along. Also, if it's helpful for you, if you were able to grab a bulletin on the bulletin on one side, there's just a little outline of where we're going to go today. Uh, We're actually going to do more than Acts chapter 28, 30, and 31, just those two verses. We'll definitely address those two verses, but then I also put on there selected scriptures because as we will see when we read Acts chapter 28, 30, and 31, kind of leaves us hanging as though, wait, Is that the end of the story? That seems rather abrupt. What happened next? Luke, why did you do that? So there's some legitimate questions. And so to try to bring full closure to the story of what happened in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, uh, we'll be looking at other scriptures to do that this day. So uh, this morning, appropriately, I titled the sermon, Paul Finishes the Race. And we're going to show how he closed out his life on earth, and his ministry to the Lord Jesus Christ, as we are informed by the book of Acts, but also his 13 New Testament epistles give us an idea. He doesn't get too personal very often in his 13 letters, but every once in a while he does and lets us know his location, where he's at, what's going on, what time in his life. So we try to put those pieces together to fill out the ministry of the Apostle Paul and how he ended his days. So that's where we're headed, and I just three main points here that I'm going to highlight to try to do that to the best of our ability. But let's start by looking at the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, and just to bring us up to speed, set the context, especially for those of us who haven't been here on a regular basis. Uh, In Acts chapter 28, so the book of Acts starts in about 30 AD. Uh, It's written by Luke. And he's given a formal account of how the church began with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, commissioning his apostles, ascended into heaven. And then those 12 apostles laid the foundation of the church starting in Jerusalem, and then it spread just as Jesus commanded beyond Jerusalem into Judea and then to Samaria and then literally into the rest of the Roman Empire. And God used Paul, who was an apostle in addition to the 12 apostles later on, to take that gospel message to the then-known world in the Roman Empire. And so the book of Acts begins in the resurrection of Christ, focuses on the ministry of Peter, really, and the apostles for the first 12 chapters, and then from chapter 13 on all the way up to where we've been today, 13 to 28 has really been an emphasis on Paul and his ministry, his ministry to the Gentiles. His ministry from about 35 A.D., now Acts chapter 28, about 62 A.D. is best as we can determine from historical accounts. So that's a good almost 30 years of Paul's ministry, but also the ministry of the early churches where we're at. So that's where it's going to end. In Acts chapter 28, to bring you up to speed of 30 and 31, let me read those two verses in 30 and 31. And he, that's Paul, and he stayed two full years. Well, where was he? Well, Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem four years prior to this. His crime, 
being a Christian, talking about Jesus. And as a result, he's incarcerated, falsely accused, mistreated, at times beaten, and he's been in prison for four years with no resolution, even though he did nothing wrong. That happens today. Christians are arrested and thrown in prison just for being Christians. It's happening all over the world today, if you're paying attention. And Christianity is becoming more unacceptable even in our own American culture with time. So this is where Paul is. He is now, so he was shipped from Jerusalem all the way across the Mediterranean Sea in just a horrible storm that he went through, uh, was shipwrecked, ended up on an island, stranded. But people were there, welcomed them, stayed there three months. So after about a four-month trip, made it eventually to Rome, and that's where we left Paul. And so when he got to Rome, he's in chains. He's shackled. It says that in chapter 28, verse 20. I wear this chain. Verse 16 of that same chapter says that a soldier, a Roman soldier, was guarding him 24-7. And they probably had the changing of the guard. Somebody was always surveilling, watching, standing by the side of the Apostle Paul. Paul definitely had a chain. We don't know if that chain was chained to the Roman soldier, but many times it was. You were literally chained to the soldier, so you couldn't break away, sneak away, get away. Could be under, Paul had some liberty and freedom that was kind of unique as a Roman citizen, so it could just be that uh, he was chained, hands, feet, or whatever, and the Roman guards were there standing on duty, not chained to him, but in all likelihood, they're literally, a Roman soldier is chained to him at all times, and every, whatever, the ch- uh, four to six hours, uh, the changing of the guard took place, they say, historians tell us, in that time under the Roman uh, Empire. So here's Paul. He is in Rome. Uh, as soon as they land... He go, he's taken to the city, he's in custody, he's a prisoner, he's chained, he's under Roman guard. Then they find a place for him to stay. He's not put in a typical cell where he's deprived and isolated and under solitary confinement. He actually has some liberty and freedom. It says that he was even put in his own house. Verse 23 of Acts 28 said he had his own lodging. And it apparently was a large, like kind of like a house, close to where Nero the emperor lived because that's where he was going to go on trial. And apparently it was sizable because it said many people came to visit him and the crowds were huge. They came to visit him at his lodging in large numbers. Also, we know about this lodging. It was rented quarters, verse 30, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters. So it was like a a house or an apartment or whatever it was. He had some freedom and liberty. He was allowed visitors to come and go freely over the course of those two years. Rented quarters, meaning apparently Paul had to pay for his housing as a prisoner. Couldn't do that on his own. Maybe he had some money with him, but he was also dependent upon the gracious saints who gave to him. Even Christians who found out he was there in Rome were very gracious in welcoming Paul, probably meeting his needs. Also, we know the Philippians heard about his imprisonment. We know they sent money, and he was their founding pastor. He got beat up almost to the point of death in Philippi, so they wanted to support their pastor. So he was in his own rented quarters, verse 30, while a prisoner. So technically he's in He's kind of in house arrest, basically, what this would look like. Today we have house arrest from the likes of even famous people 
who get in trouble with the law and then they're not thrown into a federal prison, but they actually get to stay at home and then they have an ankle brace and then they're monitored and they are limited in where they can go. But they do have some freedoms and liberties. So this is essentially what Paul had. He had he was under house arrest with freedom. Uh, friends could come and go. So, uh, by the way, on this venture in the ship that took him across the Mediterranean from Jerusalem to Rome to be subjected to a trial under Nero, who was emperor at the time, on that ship of 276 people that eventually brought them all the way in, uh, was Luke the physician was with Paul the entire time, accompanied him. And so Luke is here with Paul in Rome while he's under prison. So Luke is no doubt getting to spend a lot of time with Paul, with freedom. He can come and go as he likes. Uh, No doubt Luke is finishing up, putting his final touches on uh, the book of Acts at this time during this two-year period where Paul is a prisoner in Rome. Goes on, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters there in Rome as a prisoner with the guard under chains waiting for Nero, waiting for his court case and was welcoming all who came to him and he literally welcomed everybody who would come not just fellow believers he welcomed uh, unbelieving jews who he thought hadn't heard the gospel yet invited them into his house he's even welcoming uh, the roman guards who are chained to him for the course of two years and we don't know how many roman guards that was but for the course of two years he is shackled probably to these roman soldiers and the changing of the guard and maybe they change guards every quarter or whatever it is so over the course of two years, maybe Paul was literally chained to 10, six, pick a number, 16 different Roman soldiers. And that was their duty. And Paul welcomed them. He was a loving man. He was a godly man, a gracious man, a, a, probably a talkative, very friendly man, very welcoming. He loved people. He knew that every human being was made in the image of God. His heart's desire was that people would hear the truth, be saved, forgiven of sin, love Jesus. That was his passion. That's what drove him. That was his calling. That's what he lived for. That's all he could do now that he's confined as a prisoner. One thing was his mouth to share the love of Christ. And so he's got these Roman soldiers chained to him. And there's a captive audience for the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine being chained to the Apostle Paul as a total pagan, ignorant Roman soldier? You didn't know what you were in for. And you get chained to this guy. And they, every one of them heard the gospel of Jesus Christ over the course of those two years. So here's Paul's state. He's in these rented quarters. And what was he doing the entire time for these two years as a prisoner? Was he whining? Oh, God, how did you let me get into this situation? I don't deserve this. I was the most faithful of all the apostles. Look what I've done for you. And having a pity party. Like we are so prone to do. I I have pity parties. I'm sorry. I must confess. But Paul, he's not having a pity party. He knows his calling. He knows his mission. He knows what he's not deserving of. He knows his sin that lives within him. Oh, wretched man that I am, he tells us in Romans 7, 14 through 25. He knows that he's saved by grace. He doesn't deserve it. He's going to heaven. He has freedom and life in Christ, the spirit of God, living enemies in the family of God. He's a thankful person. He knows to be in the will of God is to always be thankful no matter what's going on in life. How do we know that? Because that's what he told the Thessalonians. You want to be in the will of God under the umbrella of God's blessing and protection, then be thankful always if you are a Christian. No matter what is going on. That's just after he got beat up almost to the point of death when he wrote that. And also maybe infected with the disease of malaria and who knows what else. In everything give thanks. In everything give thanks. So that was his attitude. And what was he doing in verse 31? He was just in this, confined in this house for two years. And he is preaching the kingdom. He's doing one thing. 
fulfilling his mission, preaching the kingdom of God. That's a summary statement, an umbrella sta- uh, statement. Whoever he could talk to, God reigns. He is the creator. He is the judge. He made you. You, if you're a human, you are accountable to that God, the king who reigns. He has a name specifically. His name is Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. And let me tell you about Jesus. That's what he did. Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So here he is for two years sitting in a cell. He's not rotting in a cell for two years. He is actually under house arrest with great freedom and liberty preaching, being productive, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, welcoming people, having fellowship with the saints, meeting unbelievers, chained to unbelievers, Roman soldiers, and continually, incessantly preaching the kingdom of God and about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it could be that historians tell us that he was chained to Roman soldiers 24-7. That would be the custom, 24-7. Think about that on a chain that's about 18 inches long. How, how do you sleep? How do you have any privacy? How, well, you don't. Two years. Amazing. And he's not discontent. And, and things we learn about Paul from other epistles during this two-year period. It's not a silent period, this two-year period. Earlier when Paul was arrested and thrown in the, in the prison at Caesarea at that palace of Herod, where Felix, the governor, the Roman governor, listened to Paul, put Paul on trial, listened to both sides of the story, concluded that Paul was not guilty of a crime and refused to set him free anyway and let him sit in a prison cell, probably in the dungeon basement of his palace. That's what Felix did. Refused to let him go. One of the reasons that Felix refused to let Paul go, even though he was innocent and let him just left him there for two years like a mistreated pet, chained with no attention, was when Paul preached to Felix, it said that Paul preached the gospel, but he also preached righteousness and the judgment of God to come. And then it says that Felix became afraid. What does that mean? He was convicted of his sin. Refused to repent, convicted of his sin, knew what Paul said was right. Oh, I don't want to hear from this guy. This, And so he, he didn't have appreciation for Paul. But that two-year period where Paul sat in the Caesarean prison uh, we can't account for any epistles that he wrote, no activity, no, just nothing going on that we can tell. So that was a two-year period of just silence. What was he doing? Maybe recovering physically, trying to recuperate. He was allowed to see friends at times, but that's different than his two-year imprisonment here in Rome where he is fully active, he is fully engaged. He was not idle. He was not silent. He was not quiet. Incredibly highly productive, so much so that he even wrote very important New Testament epistles. We're going to look at that. So uh, here's where he is. That's the context. Paul is now in this Roman prison. He's been there two years. What was he doing during that time? And also, what did he do after that? And putting all the New Testament epistles together along with the book of Acts, we can kind of conclude or surmise what happened and how his life finished out. Let's go ahead and look at it. Paul finishes the race. Three main points there. Number one, first, Paul's first imprisonment from A.D. 61 to 63. So just a couple more highlights about this imprisonment and what it entailed. What was he doing while he was chained to the Roman soldier under house arrest there? Well, things that he accomplished, we know for sure it was a two, uh, sorry, two full year period. During that time, we pr- were pretty positive that he wrote at least four New Testament epistles, maybe in this order, not necessarily, Ephesians first, then maybe Colossians, and then Philippians, I finally even probably at the end. 
So during that two-year period, he's, he's corresponding with churches, some churches that he planted, a church that he didn't plant, Colossians. He never planted the church of Colossae. It was, it was a, in close proximity to Ephesus. But he wrote these very important letters. He also met key people during this time, this two-year period. Uh, some key individuals were with him already. There was Luke and Epaphras who came, or Aristarchus, who came with him, and they were with him the whole time. Then there were other people who came to visit him that he knew from the past, from previous churches. They heard about him, came to visit him. Then there were others that were new who just met him. And maybe one of the Jews who heard him preach while he was in Rome in prison, got saved, believed, and then affiliated with Paul. And then there were other people who came to know and visit Paul because they were fellow prisoners in Rome and got saved. So we're going to look at a couple of those people. So it was a very productive ministry while in prison. Also, you can add a letter D to number one after some key people that he met. D, Luke finished the book of Acts during this two-year period probably in Rome, which is great. They were there. They were highly productive. Luke is putting final notes. Paul, can you tell me about this? What happened in uh, Philippi again? I wasn't there. That was you and Silas. And And then what a wonderful resource for Luke to finish out the book of Acts. And then letter E. You can add on there number one as well. These are ones I've thought of later. That probably during this time, it could be. We're not sure. Sixty-one. So he's in prison, waiting to go before Nero as judge to court. And we know that after a two-year period, he got out. So what, what happened? It's only one of two options. He he got his day in court finally, and he got to go before Nero's court. Can you imagine Nero? One of the most infamous, vile, violent immoral, compromised, Christ-hating people in the history of the world, Nero. And he was the emperor. He was only in his 20s. He, he took the throne when he was age 17 and assumed full power just in his 20s. He died when he was 30. And it could very well be that in about 61 A.D. or so, maybe he did get his, uh, Paul got his day before Nero. Nero wouldn't have known who Paul was. Heard the trial. It's like this guy's not guilty of anything, and that's probably why Paul was released and not killed there on the spot. Uh, Another option is Paul never had to go to trial before Nero because the way Rome did things, they had like legitimate rules and guidelines for going to court. You had to have witnesses. You had to present the evidence. You had to have two sides. You had to hear the case. Uh, There were laws that were binding. And his it could be that Paul's accusers never came to Rome to make their case. These compromised, lying, unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem who conjured up an entire false case against Paul refused and said, no way, we're not going to travel over 1,500 miles to go to Rome to go before Nero and then lie and try to get away with it. They probably were not Roman citizens. Paul was. Paul's on his home court in Rome. He's a Roman citizen. They probably weren't. So they probably said, forget it. No way, we're not going. In that case, Paul never did have a trial before Nero, and then they had a two-year statutory limit, actually, according to historians. And it could be after that, just uh, they let him go. And maybe he, ever, maybe he never met Nero. We don't know at that time. But before we go to point number two, I just want to highlight some things. Uh, so during this time, so imagine Paul in prison, limited in where he can go, pretty much confined to this house, in chains with Roman soldiers waiting to be tried by this wicked, vicious, 
Nero. By the way, what had just happened with Nero, well, when Nero rose to power at age 17, from 17 to age 20, he wasn't creating much havoc. As a matter of fact, he had somewhat of a decent reputation from the people and from the senators and those who surrounded him, primarily because he was being restrained by Seneca, one of his counselors and tutors, Burroughs, another counselor, his mother, his very wicked, evil, controlling mother. So they were restraining him. And so he wasn't doing these horrible things, but he had it with his mother. And by the time he was age 20, in 59 AD, he had his mother murdered once he rose to power. Okay, boom, she's out of the way. Then he got rid of Seneca. He was out of the way. Then he got rid of his first two wives. And then he was on his third wife. She was absolutely vicious and wicked. She comes on the scene around 59 AD. All these horrible things that Nero uh, started to do coincide with this very horrible, wicked woman uh, that came into her life. Papea, or whatever her name was. Terrible. Influencing him. And basically, she prompted him and pushed him to just put away all restraints in terms of his vices, and he just gave full force to all of his guttural, base, wicked desires and viciousness. And he just went off the rails in terms of his behavior. And so he is at peak wickedness when he encounters Paul in prison at Rome. So that's what Paul has to contend with. This is not a nice, sophisticated, subdued, restrained Nero that he's going to be confronted with. This is a Nero he's going to potentially confront in the courtroom who's already had his mother killed and at about this time also had killed at least one wife and this other wife who was vicious and wicked. He ended up killing her too. She was pregnant, about to give birth. And the story is that he just kicked her to death. Starting in the gut. That's how vicious he was. So this is potentially where Paul is going to go before trial. Um, so during this time, as a prisoner, he has this freedom, and he starts writing these letters uh, to the churches because they hear them. They're sending uh, visitors. They're sending letters to Paul. Paul's corresponding. He's still doing his pastoral duty, oversight duty, uh, apostolic duty. He's giving them divine revelation by virtue of letters. Can you imagine? He, he goes to Ephesus, and he plants a church. He pastors it for three years. He leaves. They were weeping when he left. And then five years later, the apostle Paul, they get a letter from him, and it's called the Book of Ephesians. It's awesome. And they heard that he was in prison in Rome. And they're fearing that their pastor, their founding pastor, is going to die. They're a beloved apostle. And so Paul writes them to encourage them. So go to Ephesians. Because I want you to see Ephesians chapter 6. So that you can read Ephesians 6 in the context knowing that where Paul is. He is in Rome. He's a prisoner. He's been under house arrest. And he's very possibly chained to a Roman soldier. And Paul writes this wonderful letter that Christians have adored for 2,000 years and lived by. It's so practical. And then he concludes it in chapter 6, reminding them that pretty much we are aliens in this world. This earth is not our home. So trust in the Lord, even if you're under duress and persecution, even if you're being rejected by those in the Roman Empire and those who don't believe you. Uh, have a proper attitude towards the fight. It's not political. It's not social. It's not economic. It's not anything else. It is spiritual. We're in a spiritual fight. And that warrants spiritual armament and tools that God has given us the resources for what our armor is, how we fight. So we fight in spiritual realms. We we fight by letting God fight for us through his providence and his power and his Holy Spirit and prayer and the tools he's given us like the Bible, truth, scripture, truth. What a powerful tool. Prayer, faith, all these things. So 
Paul's reminding us, how do we fight? Well, he says, finally be strong in Ephesians 6, 10. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I don't, we don't know if Paul's writing actually with the Romans. I mean, it's a big old chain on his hand or uh, probably has a secretary that he was allowed to have writing this down. And so he's telling the secretary this truth. And here's the Roman soldier having to listen to this whole thing. And so Paul's looking at this Roman soldier and describing every part of his armament and his outfit and wardrobe from head to toe oh nice helmet there centurion and then he gives us his illustration finally be strong christians in the lord and the strength of his might put on the full armor of god not literal armor like this soldier has but it's spiritual but this is a metaphor so that you will be able to stand firm not against caesar nero but the schemes of the devil that's who we fight against and sin for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against forces in the spiritual realm. Verse 13, therefore, take up the full armor of God. And he's looking at a Roman soldier while he's saying this. There is the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist evil. Verse 14, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And that Roman soldier had a breastplate. Verse 15, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, putting something, the Roman soldier had armament even on his feet to protect him. Verse 16, in addition to all, take up the shield of faith. And the Roman soldier had a shield. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then pray. Pray for me. Pray for me as I pray for you. He said a prayer. He said he prays for him at the beginning of the epistle. I pray for you ceaselessly night and day. He said that also in Colossians. So here's Paul. He's chained to a Roman soldier. And Paul's not only preaching and giving scripture and having Bible studies and dictating divine revelation from Almighty God that this Roman soldier has to listen to and as actually the subject of the content, but also they have to sit there and listen to Paul in his prayer life. I bow the knee. I pray daily. I pray for you by name. And he's going through his prayers, praying for the saints, for the churches. And these Roman soldiers are listening to this hour after hour after hour after hour after hour after hour. Roman soldier after Roman soldier for two full years. You would think that some of these Roman soldiers would get saved. Well, let's go to Philippians. So he writes uh, Ephesians. And then uh, we do believe that Paul eventually got released because in Philippians and Philemon, which are probably written after Ephesians, he gives an indication as though he's anticipating being released. He says, "I'm, I'm, I'm I'm about to come to you. So you get the sense that Paul feels like he's about to be released from prison. So maybe he knows something that uh, the statutory limit is up or that he knows he's not guilty and he's going to be let go and uh, Roman law will rule the day. And so you see hints of that in Philippians, but also in Philemon. Philippians 2.24, he tells the Philippians, I trust in the Lord that I myself will be coming to you soon. Says the same thing in his letter to Philemon, I'm coming to you soon. And Philemon was in the church of Colossae. But look what happened in Philippians chapter 1. Now, I want you to know, brethren, so he's a prisoner writing, that my circle, and the Philippians are concerned, oh, Paul, how horrible it must be. We feel so sorry for you. We want you to be free and released, and are you okay? We want to help you and send money to you, and how terrible. And he said, well, brethren, you know, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the game. This is amazing. You'll never believe what happened. I know it sounds bad. I'm in prison. I'm not guilty. I've been sitting here for two years. Yeah, that is bad. I got this big old chain lugged on me and this Roman soldier always tied to me. 
and I, I can't see you and I can't move out freely from church. Yeah, so there's a downside. But man, there's amazing ministry that's been going on since I've been here as a prisoner. Great progress. Well, as a matter of fact, verse 13, let me be specific. That in my imprisonment here in Rome, waiting to see Nero during this two-year period, that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. The Praetorian Guard. Very specific. Who are they? Those are the hand-picked, elite, trained Roman soldiers begun by Augustus, but also continued under the reign of Claudius and Nero. The elite hand-selected the best of the best of the Roman soldiers who were called in service, nine to 10,000 of them in the entire city of Rome, to be personal bodyguards of the emperor directly. Kind of like the Secret Service. Kind of like the SS back in the days of the Nazis. Oh, not that the Secret Service are Nazis. But anyway, uh, but these very specialized, highly trained, highly trusted government officials who dedicate, commit themselves to give their life for their leader. This is the Praetorian Guard. Nine to ten thousand of them. Great power, great authority, highly respected. They also assumed tremendous political power as an entity or as a group, because it was the Praetorian Guard who actually gave the nod or the consent to a proposed new emperor. And we know from history that Nero became emperor, not just because of those in the higher power in government, but also because the Praetorian Guard allowed him to. So these are Roman soldiers of the highest order. And Paul has been given the gospel nonstop for two full years that this Roman soldier uh, took the gospel and he took it and he spread it and it just infiltrated the entire inner circle of the Roman uh, Empire at the highest level. Heard the gospel. The whole Praetorian Guard has heard about me, my imprisonment, the gospel, and what I stand for. And no doubt, no doubt some of those soldiers got saved. Can you imagine the entire Praetorian Guard, the men who are committed to protecting Nero, serve his bidding wherever he goes? That's probably how Nero definitely heard about Paul. Oh, who is this guy? What? Christian gospel? What is that? Is that? That's not a sanctioned religion here in Rome. That's, that's, I hear that's different from the, from the Jews tell me that Christianity is not the same thing as Judaism, that it's totally distinct, that it's a cult, that it's a, a heresy. That's not sanctioned under Roman law. And these Christians, they're all over. They've been here since 30 AD. I've heard about them and they're, they're a rising influence. They're in, infiltrating our city and in our community and they have weird behavior and they isolate themselves and they don't bow the knee to emperor and they don't engage in our festivities. They don't go to our temples. They don't serve our gods. Who are these Christians? We know from history that's exactly what was going on in Nero's mind and his attitude toward Christians. Nevertheless, God blesses his word as it infiltrates the entire Praetorian Guard. Not only that, verse 14, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my... There it is. People were getting saved in the Roman uh, Empire because of the ministry of Paul and him in prison. Trusting in the Lord. People were getting saved because of my imprisonment. No doubt it was uh, not a wholesale revival, but probably a remnant as always. And as always, whenever Paul preached... Truth always does what? Truth always divides. Always. There are those who respond positively and there are those who get angry. And that's what was happening here at this level. But there were some trusting in the Lord. They have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear because they see me in chains. Subject. 
to the penalty of death. Look at the end of Philippians. He's saying goodbyes, hoping to see them soon. And verse 22, verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus, you Philippians. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. That's absolutely amazing. You can read it this way. All the saints greet you, especially those of Nero's household. Whatever that means. So that could be Nero's family, his extended family, and those all around him, his friends, everybody. Uh, so the gospel had crept in to the highest level. It didn't. Uh, we know Nero rejected it. But his family accepted it. And once again, not only is he hearing it from his personal bodyguards, he's hearing it now it has infiltrated his family at his banquets, at his orgies. Why isn't cousin so-and-so here? Cousin Ignatius, he's supposed to be here. What do you mean he refuses to come and engage in this behavior? He's done it his whole life. What do you mean he's a Christian? So what if he's a Christian? He still needs to be here. We, we know that when Nero finally had the opportunity to put Paul to death by beheading, and also we know that when the great, there's a famous fire that took place in the summer, July of AD 64, where basically the entire city of Rome burned to the ground. Conveniently, Nero was not around, but came back after it started and pretended to manage the oversight of trying to put it out. But also at the same time celebrating as the flames are going, and some suspect he even added to it after seven days as it kept going, burning the city to the ground because he wanted to build a new city in his honor and in his name and then in the end people were suspicious of nero because he was such uh, a vile character that even roman citizens and others in roman government were accusing or suspicious that nero actually started this fire and he tried to squelch those rumors by pretending to manage putting out the fire and the rumors just kept coming and he couldn't pacify the accusers so he came up with the strategy we think from historians tacitus and other writers who lived around that time, testify that Nero blamed the Christians. They did it. Some also believe that Jews who rejected Paul's gospel were a part of coming up with that rumor. What was the Christians? It was that that false occultic heretical religion that's not sanctioned by Rome. You know, Nero, that one, those Christians, we got to get rid of them once and for all. And so Nero said, you know what? That's a good idea. And that thus began one of the worst massive first persecutions against the entire church there in rome as christians were being slaughtered in mass in the most grotesque and evil manner nero himself spearheading that persecution out of sheer entertainment taking christians having them being arrested trying to force them to confess and if they confessed even if they didn't confess would kill them in the most grotesque unimaginable manner like taking christians live living and then sewing them inside animal carcasses and then releasing them to dogs in the neighborhood to be eaten to death. That's just one, lighting them on fire as Christians became torches in the night to light the streets of Rome. Absolutely horrific, spearheaded by Nero because of his hatred for Christianity and maybe even the conviction that came with it is maybe he heard the truth. Nevertheless, God moved on souls, and even people inside of Caesar's household were being saved. Absolutely amazing. So 
That just gives us a glimpse of Paul's first Roman imprisonment. But so after that two-year period, Paul is released. So go to point number two. We think by putting together First uh, Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus, we come up with the rest of the story. I put there uh, Paul's post-prison ministry, 63 to 66. This is after he gets out of the Roman imprisonment after two years. So he's let go, and he has some freedom for a time period. Could have been anywhere from two to four years. We're not quite sure. And during this time from 63 to 66 A.D., Paul has a little bit of freedom. We think he wrote uh, Titus and Timothy, 1 Timothy at least. Some say he wrote 2 Timothy. You're not sure. Maybe he wrote 2 Timothy later. Uh, so you can scratch 2 Timothy there and just go with 1 Timothy, and we will just go with another theory that has merit and just say that he wrote second timothy from rome point number three uh, but just so you know in paul's post-prison ministry 63 to 66 none of what happened there is listed in the book of acts so luke concludes his book about 60 a.d and then we don't know what happened with paul from 60 a.d to 67 when he died from the book of acts we can't find it in the book of acts that's why we have to go to titus timothy second timothy and mainly those epistles. Oh, and also uh, Romans. So here's what we think happened during this short period of freedom. Go to Acts, uh, sorry, Romans 15. When Paul wrote the book of Romans, he, with great anticipation, he'd been wanting to go to Rome for the longest time, for years, because it was the capital of the then known world. And he knew that if he could get to the largest city in the world with its two million plus people, and a contingent of Jews there, and also a church had been started, that he could use that as a hub to do ministry to the rest of the world at that time. And so he had a desire to go to Rome. And so he writes the Romans, whom he'd never met, but there were Christians there, and he writes in this letter. And at the end, in chapter 15, or sorry, uh, yeah, chapter 15, starting at verse, uh, we'll start at verse 24, he's just saying his plans. I want to go to Rome, and on my way to Rome, verse 24, I'll go by... Rome. I'll come by visit you at Rome. I've never met you before. I've heard about you. I know some of you because I met you in Jerusalem or whatever. And now you're there in Rome and I want to be with the church in Rome, spend some time with you. And after that, I'll, I'll go on to Spain and you can send me off to Spain because I want to go to Spain. So Spain is another 1200 miles to the west of Rome. And Spain is the, the very edge of the Roman Empire that time. Uncharted territory. Paul always wanted to go to new uncharted territory with the gospel. So he's got Spain on the brain. Whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, help me on my way. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'll give them the relief money. And then he mentions Spain again. So two times in Romans, he has this desire that's very specific that I'm going to Spain. Now, so most scholars believe that he actually went on to Spain during this time period. The reason they say that is because when he writes Second Timothy in 67 AD, he says, I have finished the course. I've done everything that I wanted to do. I've run the race. So people assume, well, he had a very strong desire to go to Spain, so maybe he made it to Spain. And there is a, a history and a tradition that Paul's influence came to Spain. Even <laughs> there's a tradition that Paul made it to, to Britain up north. But that's not in the Bible. So here's what he did. So it could be, first thing he does, gets out of prison and goes to Spain. He's got some of his companions with him. Could be Luke, could be Aristarchus and others that are with him. Goes to Spain. He evangelizes new regions. And after that, uh, he takes Titus and Timothy further under his wing, training them. He knows his time is at hand. He's getting old. These are the future. And so he takes Timothy and Titus with him, and he goes and sends Timothy off to pastor Ephesus. 
they need a man of God there. And then he sends Titus off to Crete. They need a pastor, a man of there. And so he writes those two letters after they are there, letting them know, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to set these churches in order. You need to establish leadership, elders to perpetuate the ministry of the church. And by the way, here are the official qualifications of elders or pastors in the church, which Paul had never given up until this time. And this would preserve the continuity of the local church in a very formal way because Paul knew his time was at hand. So this is what Paul did during this short period of time. And so we believe that he wrote Titus and 1 Timothy from Macedonia up there by Philippi to Titus at Crete and to Timothy over there in Ephesus. And there's some parallels between those wonderful letters. And then after that, Paul was moving around uh, in the east by the Aegean Sea, maybe some areas closer to Spain, and then back into Rome. And at some point he got in trouble. At this point, Nero has has reached uh, a, a climax of his hatred towards Christians. He's already been putting them to death for years. And Paul was caught, maybe informed upon by a guy named Alexander the coppersmith, for all we know, an unbelieving Jew who turned Paul in. We don't know, just trying to put the pieces together. And eventually Paul ends up getting arrested by the Romans and sent before Nero. And that brings us to point number three, 67 AD. This is how Paul's life finally ends. So he is arrested and subjected to imprisonment in rome for the second time so this would be called paul's second imprisonment ad 67 go to second timothy we'll conclude with this so second timothy is paul's last epistle he wrote 13 of them this one written in 67 ad this one written from a roman prison more like a dungeon he didn't have uh, the nice comfortable plush living quarters that he did previously now he's in a pit isolated in a dungeon and however maybe he had a secretary that he was able to give the information to that they could write second timothy or a portion of it on his behalf and this is really his last will and testament this is how paul's life ends 67 ad paul by the way timothy titus first timothy and second timothy are called the pastoral epistles and then those other four are called the prison epistles Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. But actually, 2 Timothy could be called a prison epistle because he wrote it from a prison in Rome. And here's how, let's go to chapter 4, the end of the epistle. So imagine Paul, 67 AD, concluding his ministry. He's about to die. He knows he's going to die. He knows at this point, it's over. I am done. Maybe the verdict had already been given when he wrote this letter. He, He knows the dastardly deeds that Nero has already done over the course of almost five years now. I'm not getting out of this. It could very well be that Peter was killed at the same time. Maybe just prior to Paul. Tradition says that Peter was hung upside down. Crucified upside down. By Nero in Rome. Why? For being a Christian. And Paul was beheaded by Nero in Rome. Why was Paul beheaded and Peter crucified? Well, because Paul was a Roman citizen. And when they enacted a capital crime on a Roman citizen, they didn't crucify them. History says. But those who are not Roman citizens, crucify him, humiliate him on the Appian Way publicly. And that's what they did to Peter. And here's what Paul says, Second Timothy. And, you know, every Christian, their heart's desire, as Peter mentioned earlier, should, this should be your, your heart's desire of how you're going to finish out your life, your Christian walk. You're going to be pleasing Jesus to your last dying day. Paul says in verse 6, For I am already being poured out, as a drink offering 
An offering is something you kill. It's a living thing you kill. It's a living thing dedicated to God. You burn it, and then it rises up to God. It goes to heaven. So that's why Paul's comparing himself to an offering. Not that his life was efficacious, but I'm going to God, and hopefully it's pleasing. Hopefully he's pleased by the ministry of my life. The time of my departure has come. Departure is uh, his death. So departure, I'm just leaving. I'm leaving here and I'm going to heaven. That's the Christian view of, of death. We leave here, we arrive in heaven in the presence of Christ. I fought the good fight. Isn't that awesome? That's amazing. He's not being arrogant. He, he knows he's just committed to being faithful, dependent upon the grace of God. I fought the good fight. That's the Christian fight. Contend earnestly for the faith. There, there is fighting that goes on and is required to be a Christian. It's a battle. It is a struggle. It is a war. And it's primarily spiritual, right? So we're all engaged in a spiritual war against our own sin, but also sin in the world. And we have unique spiritual tools, armament by which we fight. And Paul did that faithfully. So he was not a sissy. He fought the good fight. Our greatest weapon is truth, by the way. We wield truth. We wield it courageously. We wield it in context, with grace, but forthrightly, clearly. It's binding, it's universal. That's our view of truth. That's our greatest weapon. I have finished the course. See, he knows. It's an, I, maybe I have gone to Spain. I've kept the faith. I haven't abandoned the faith like many have abandoned the faith. Demas may have abandoned the faith. Verse 10. Demas was someone who followed Paul and was with Paul in 60. A.D. as a companion, partner in ministry. Seven years later, bailed. Not just bailed on Paul, but maybe even bailed on the faith. And there were others who bailed on the faith. Over the course of Paul's 30-year ministry, he saw people abandon the ministry, become apostate, turn on him, stab him in the back, undermine his ministry, hurt him. Traitors to the faith. And that's why he's saying this, I've kept the faith. I've kept the faith. Luke kept the faith. Aristarchus kept the faith. Timothy kept the faith. Titus kept the faith. There were a handful who kept the faith to the very end, but many did not. Verse 8, in the future there is laid up for me in the cr- a crown of righteousness. I'm going to be rewarded by my Lord when I get to heaven, which is the Lord. The righteous judge will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all. That's you. If you're a Christian, this is true of you. What a wonderful verse. Put your name in there. There is laid up for me. Cliff, a follower of Jesus, a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Everyone who loves Jesus. Does this life seem hard, depressing, miserable, trying? Yes, it is. That's not what we're living for. We're living for what is laid up for us crown from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gets real personal. Verse 9, I make every effort, Timothy, to come to see me soon for Demas... Having loved this present world has deserted me, abandoned me, went to Thessalonica. Verse 8, only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark. Pick up John Mark, the guy who abandoned me 20 years ago, who I was mad at, who I refused to serve with. Pick up Mark. Give Mark my greeting. Bring him with you. I want to see John Mark. Why? For he is useful for me. Isn't that amazing? That's restoration. That's true Christianity. Forgiveness. That's the work of God. You got a broken relationship somewhere? Commit it to God. God, heal this relationship. Only you can do it. It's wonderful to see the faithfulness of 
some of these people for so many years, Titus, Timothy, Luke, Tychicus, Aristarchus, we know from another passage, and I think about that from when I graduated from seminary in 1992, and there were 42 men that graduated, and we wanted to serve the Lord, and all of us wanted to be pastors, and then the years go by, and the years go by, and that 42 becomes less and less because some of the men, they're not serving as pastors anymore. They've left the pastorate, and some have actually left their families and left their wives and left their children and left the faith as the years go. It's very sad, dwindling. God, be gracious to me. Preserve me. Protect me. Help me finish the race. Help me stay faithful. God, and I need other people in my life to ensure that, but most of all, the grace of God, right? And that's true of all of us. And then finally, verse 14, oh, 13, when you come, Timothy, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. I need my scriptures, my Old Testament and other scriptures. And those beloved gospels, who knows what the parchments were. Alexander the coppersmith, he did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Greet Priscilla, verse 19, and Aquila, the household. They were faithful over the years. Erastus remained at Corinth. Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you. Putin's Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. Those were all people a part of the church in Rome. Verse 22, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. With that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day and uh, the wonderful opportunity we have to be with the saints. To lay all things before you, to, to sing to you from our hearts, to be reminded of the glorious gospel that has saved us, the treasure of your word, the opportunity to study it and read it together. Thank you for the faithful ministry of the Apostle Paul and these amazing words that he concluded with in Second Timothy and for preserving those for us so that, God, they can also be a last will and testament of every one of us who truly knows you, loves you, has been saved by your gospel. Because Jesus is our Lord and Savior. We give you all the glory. We thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.